Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. You good people. Ren Jacob. Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for coming to chat with me today about the Golden Rule. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Will you give the um, Will you give the listeners a little a little bit of your background? Um, it doesn't have to be uh, too too involved, but kind of uh, what you did in the military and and a little bit maybe how you got involved with working on the Golden Rule. Okay. Yeah. So. I joined the Air Force in 1984, just out of high school. I had thought about, uh, you know, what I wanted to do, and I felt like I wanted to just just face right into my fears, and that was kind of one of them. I wasn't quite sure what I was afraid of, but, you know, or what I was, uh, what I would be challenged by, but. Sure enough, I found it in the Air Force, but uh, it was 1984. Of course, was a different, much different time than we've moved into now, where we're having these never-ending conflicts. You know, in '84, we just heard about some things. I remember hearing about something in Granada, or you hear about something that happened in Latin America, and you. I don't, I remember not forming a big opinion about it, but trying a little bit to understand it peripherally. So, went in there, I got to, got to be a firefighter, which was fortunate. <laughs> Since I went open general, I could have had any job, but the, uh, captain who gave us our jobs and basic training was thoughtful or considered enough to offer me that job. And I said, yes, sir, I think I can do that. So, Went on to Chinook Air Force Base for the technical school, and it was only six weeks of basic training, and then that was another six weeks of technical school at Chinook Air Force Base in Illinois. And then we uh, got assigned to our first base, and Sicily was the one that came up for me, which was I had no idea we had anything, but we have a had a remote air station at the time in Sicily. Is in the middle of the island of Sicily, just kind of a rural town outside of this rural town where they had a small ground launch cruise missile base. And so we had, we of course had a fire department there to take care of the little base, all that stuff. And then the, we didn't really go into the area where the ground launch cruise missiles were too much, but we kind of had a few exercises where we got close to it. We had one exercise where we actually went through one of those missiles. And that was, you know, kind of really 
makes you check your check yourself and it's very ominous, very big deal. Felt like to me anyway, walking through there and just be aware of the potential of this thing and hopefully that never happens. So and then later in the eighties, this is just a side note, later in the eighties they with the Russians when we apparently used to get along or we used to negotiate more with, with the Russian when it was the Soviet Union. We uh got rid of those ground launch cruise missiles along with some apparently some Russian missiles in Eastern Europe that were threatening. So they kind of canceled each other out and they de decommissioned those. So then I went on to Edwards Air Force Base. Spent a spent about a year there. Edwards was very interesting. It's a major base for the Air Force System Command, I believe it, it was. And uh, they had every different kind of air, airplane that the Air Force has there because it's our, a big test testing area for aircraft. And they had, uh, I believe it was a three or five mile long runway on the lake bed. And then a three mile long flight line just goes on forever. So we had, I believe, three fire stations spread out along that fire front flight line at Edwards. And then we had a structural fire station and a, a secret up on the, what they called it, the rock, which is mysterious pile of whatever big small mountain that seemed to come out of nowhere in the desert there in Mojave Desert. They called it the rock, for, but it was the rocket research laboratory. So that was another gated area within the base. And I went there once to deliver an errand, I remember, so I got to see it, but they were all civilians that manned that fire station, I remember. We, we always have half, half the fire stations have civilians and half military so that the military guys can be ready if they need to be deployed. So, let's see, then after, after Edwards, I went and decided to go back to school and Guess I was a little thought I needed to be doing something more important in with my life, whatever that means. But I decided to go back to school and go into the National Guard from the active duty. So I went on a program they call Palace Chase. I always have these interesting names. But it was uh, when you serve twice as much time as you have had left in the active duty, you serve. We served twice as much time in the National Guard, so I had basically, I think it was two and a half years or two years left to serve in the active duty, so I ended up doing about four years in the National Guard, at, and that was in Portland up here, and since I'm from Albany area in the Valley, we lived there near Dallas at the time, so we I'd go to Portland Air National Guard Base for my National Guard duty until 1990, and then I, my date for separation came up in 1990, and I got along real good with my commander and everything, but I just had been paying attention enough to notice and, like, hear some of my senior master sergeants talking like we were going to be going to war in Iraq, and this was 
before even Saddam Hussein, I think, before he even invaded Kuwait. But at any rate, they seem to see that coming, and I didn't feel that that was a good idea, and I didn't want to be associated with the Air Force for that reason, so I went ahead and followed my, did my separation as opposed to re-enlisting. So that was my experience in the Air Force. And, um, I will say that there was an interesting thing that happened towards the end of my time at the National Guard base, but I don't want to get into a whole long story. Suffice it to say that uh, that uh, I got to experience a level of, you know, usually you have a chain of command. Usually you have people that you can identify who they are by their rank or maybe by their name. But so it's generally not hard to figure out who you're dealing with. If you, you know, if you walk by somebody or if you engage in a conversation with somebody in the military, it's usually not hard to figure out who it is and where you stand in relation to rank-wise or whatever. But I had this experience with somebody who didn't fit into that system and didn't seem to be accountable to anybody. And I think it was involved with a Russian fighter jet that people kind of actually looked that up back in... There was a news broadcast. can't remember what news, you know, network news station, but at the time, 1990, that summer, August, there was a Russian fighter jet that we had been shown in the hangar because we were firefighters and it happened to be there. So our leadership decided we should take advantage of this and take a look at this Russian MiG fighter jet that was sitting in the hangar at the Portland Air National Guard base. So that that's my... Uh, time in the Air Force, and then uh, afterwards, I kind of had paid attention to, uh, been somewhat familiar with the Veterans for Peace group. Just, I don't remember exactly where I heard about it, but whenever I did hear about it, I'd be like, oh, what are those guys doing, and what are they talking about, and I remember one of the things was maybe, gosh, this might have been like 2003 or so, that I heard about uh, some commemoration they were having and they were walking around Portland there talking about this guy Travis, this young young guy, Travis, who had died in combat in Iraq. And I was kind of touched by that. And, but I hadn't really gotten involved until just the past 10 years or so. And then... In 2015, I was aware of the Golden Rule, and they were, they had just spent from 2010 to 2015 with all volunteer work to rebuild this, this boat that had end up, ended up sunk in Humboldt Bay. So there in Humboldt Bay, they erased that, figured out what it was, and organized this Veterans for Peace group to rebuild it. And it took them five years. And so I had given given a little bit, but I never haven't had a lot much money to give. But anyway, I gave a little donation and just kind of paid attention. And then 2017, I guess they after they had recommissioned and and uh, 
did their first year of activism down in California, and they went down to, I guess they went to San Diego first, and they like to go to the uh, big summertime events. That's some of my story, and did, did you have any clarifying questions? Um, I had one, not so much about the Golden Rule at this moment, but I, I, I was, uh, and I, I don't recall when you and I talked on the phone recently, um, if you happen to mention it, but about um, working with firefighting foam as a portion of your job. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely a thing, and I, and, you know, they did give us some minimal warnings, like, but they didn't, certainly didn't explain the possibility of how toxic it is or was, but I remember at Chinoot Air Force Base, we would, of course, train with the foam, because that's a pretty important ingredient in a crash firefighting situation, is that you have, that you're able to apply foam to a burning aircraft or just so what they do is they soak a who had this basically full frame of an aircraft there and uh, and they would flood it with fuel like a, uh, inches or maybe even up to a foot of fuel so thousands of gallons of jet fuel and then they light it off let it get going real good and then have us go in there and lay down the foam on top to see how efficiently we could put that fire out with the foam. And then, of course, afterwards, as we would kind of go in there with our boots and turnout gear and everything, and they'd just try and they'd show us how if you're not careful or it's easy to reignite the fire by stirring it around. And so... That was part of our training exercise with the foam. And when whenever we were at a, like, Portland International Guard base, we would occasionally spray foam to make sure it's working properly and check our levels. And I remember the smell of it. Just, I don't think they recommended that you wear masks, but they recommended that you wear gloves when you're, like, filling the filling the foam into the truck but yeah we certainly could have been a little more careful with that and it sounds like it's a very toxic substance that sticks around like a lot of things that we figure out later yeah, un un unfortunately and especially for if someone happened to have to do it deal with it over and over and over again um over a longer period of time um but yeah i, I don't know if you um happened to hear the episode we did with Pat Elder on, uh, on, on, on PFAS. And, and yeah, it's, I, my uncle, um, uh, lives in Southern Idaho. He, um, is a air force air guard veteran. Um, pretty, pretty, not, uh, he, he served a shorter period of time than you did. Um, but, uh, he worked at Fairchild and did a lot of training with, with the foam and, and, because of its, you know, bioaccumulative nature, um, and not not just in soil, but in people and fish, if they're if it's in the water, in the local animals, I mean, it just it everywhere. So, the thing the thing that I have I have taken to tell him is that he has to watch his health really carefully, um, because that you you never know when something like that could end up um, poking its head out. 
Um, yeah. You know, it could even be years and years after the person's exposure. And, of course, it depends on the individual person, too. Um, but, yeah, very dangerous stuff. And I, I really, really hope that they come up with a less, less toxic alternative to it soon. Yeah, I was wondering that, too. I I don't know what the situation is if they still use that or use some other kind of adjuvant. Because basically, I just remember it being an adjuvant, something that's like soap. Mm-hmm. And then we, if I remember if it spilled a little bit on the on the floor of the truck bays area or something, we mop it up and it would take forever because it was like soap. You're just spreading around soap. Yeah, yeah. A little bit, a little bit at a time as you mop away there. So, yeah, I'm probably exposed to it a little bit. Yeah, the, the 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 stuff that I've seen recently that they have some bigger places, places with you know, I would assume bigger hangars dealing with bigger size uh, wings of of aircraft have like um, drainage systems that it actually it will go underneath a hangar and it can get stored there and removed from there, but it doesn't protect it from getting into the water supply, though. So possibly an improvement for people that are actually dealing with it in terms of hands-on, but in terms of the environment around it and people around it, yeah, I – and and I I feel like DOD is still slow-rolling it as much as they can. Um, That was one thing we mentioned with with Pat Elder is that the – number of people that could end up being affected by that could easily out uh, outnumber the number of wounded that came back from, you know, the war on terror. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, could, it could be in the, in the hundreds of thousands or potentially millions, depending on, on what happened. But, um, but yeah, real, uh, real dangerous stuff. So. Well, I, I always thought it did. It kind of was similar to how there's a lot of, you know, syndromes or, or health situations that we describe from from people's uh, combat experience over in the Middle East, like PTSD, like um, the burn pits. But some of the things that I feel like have an effect that, that either get glossed over or get thrown in with other things that I shouldn't think should be more aware people should be more aware of is like the depleted uranium weaponry apparently that's a pretty i mean apparently has a function the reason we use depleted uranium weapons is not just to get rid of some depleted uranium from nuclear waste which is a place to put it but uh because it has this penetrating ability to go go in through heavy concrete, through steel, and just uh, through well armored tanks and things like that. So, but uh, we, we need to be aware of it as a health issue as well, and, and ongoing for the people that live there. Of course, the people that have to rebuild the buildings that were hit by depleted uranium weapons. There's been some studies that have been done on people, uh, Iraqis, that live close to places that were um, subjected to heavy bombardment. And this is more during the first Gulf War. I don't know how much depleted uranium was used, if it was used during um, since 9-11. Um, 
I, I wouldn't doubt it, but it, I'd have to look at it more. But they it talked about that the following the first Gulf War that the amount of you know that the amount of birth defects went up astronomically, the amount of miscarried pregnancies, people getting um, uh, cancers of all different kinds. So let's uh, let's get let's chat some more about the Golden Rule. I would really like to hear about um, the voyage that you went on aboard it. Yeah. Well, let's see. Like I said, I got to, in 2017, I got to go with it when they came up here to the Pacific Northwest. They, they came up to Portland and went to the Portland Fleet Week in, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was 2017. So that's in June, right? When they have that week long roast festival. And we would sail up and down the river by the boats and, and we had a lot of good feedback from the uh, military folks as well as a lot of people just on the shore, you know, when they're handing out their brochures. But we thought it was interesting that we, we did get so much interest from more, certainly more from the soldiers and sailors than, than from the public because they, I always feel like they kind of, more some more than others, of course, but they have an I have a sense of w- what's going on and what they're involved with, and not not always, you know, they're not sure how how they feel about it, and they they like to check out the, what what we're doing. I'm sure they have a easier time connecting the dots than most people. Yeah. So then, uh, let's see. And after they went back down to California, this is 2018, and that's when they made their big plan to sail over to Hawaii and then on to Japan, or on onto the Marshall Islands and then on to Japan. But that was all to commemorate the original voyage. So it was 1957 when the kind of the idea started to come together. And it was a very much a Quaker-based and a, a Quaker-supported project because the Quakers were, they had been protesting the testing of nuclear weapons and that, that has been, this has been happening for quite a while, but they hadn't got a lot of traction. And so a few of them came up with this idea of how, what other ways can we protest other than just sitting outside the buildings or whatnot, holding up a sign? So they came up with this idea of the boat and sailing it into the nuclear testing area, which sounds kind of crazy, but you know, when when you get to that point of trying to come up with something different, these are the things you end up doing. So it was 1958 that they actually found the boat is a somewhat used, I guess. But it was designed in Southern California, was designed actually to sail over to Channel Islands from L.A. and then have that nice broad reach sail back, motor over and sail back. So it was, it wasn't, it's not the nicest sailboat and it's not a particularly modern sail design or anything. It's a gaff rig catch, which means it has the main, main mast is, is taller and it has a, a gaff rigged uh, sail, mainsail, which has, means it has two halyards kind of holding up a spar at the top, which is not not exactly the easiest 
boat to deal with. But uh, so in 1958, they Albert Bigelow is the captain, as I said, and so he's a very interesting figure. Certainly worth reading his book, and it's still in print. It's called uh, Golden Rule: An Experiment in Truth, The Voyage of the Golden Rule, I guess. 1958, they got it all put together and takes takes months of planning and you know making sure that all the equipment's ready and getting getting everything fixed up and then finally took off in 1958 I believe it was I want to say April May but they had one of the crew became deathly sick seasick I guess to the point where Coast Guard came, had come out and checked on him and they're like no we do have this guy. So they ended up turning around, and they had been four days out. They ended up going, having to go all the way back to California, get a different crew member, and uh, prepare themselves to go again. So there was plenty of opportunity for it to, you know, collapse. But with support from lots of people, different, you know, it took took more than just a lot more than just the four man crew. But certainly they were dedicated and. And did it. So I guess it was later in 1958 they finally did get going, sailed over to Hawaii, which, when you read his book, is just amazing. To the storms they sailed through, the difficulties of sailing that boat, which I have some idea of, but it's a whole different thing when you're cruising along the coast and know that you can go into a port at any point, pretty much. So sailing to Hawaii was quite a big deal that they got over there and then they had been telling everybody what they're doing. They had gotten pretty famous in the press and newspapers had covered them for quite a few months in 1958 there. And so the authorities knew of them and what they were doing and the Coast Guard picked them up the first time that they went out to sail to the Marshall Islands. They had hundreds of people at the dock waving them farewell and wasn't wasn't hard to figure that out. So they picked them up before they crossed from Hawaii waters into international waters, which is it's like three miles out. They just have to get them before then, and they it's not they did that. So they had a trial when they took them took them in there, and they had a pretty good case, made a pretty good case. It's all written in the book there. It's quite the story, multiple lawyers that tried to defend them. And, but they lost the case, and they were put on probation, basically, and told not to try that again. And just, and, But, uh, of course, the crew decided they took their orders from higher... And they decided they were going to go ahead and do it again. So same thing, notified press. No, they weren't trying to do it in secret or anything. But but this time when they sailed out and the Coast Guard picked them up, they threw them in jail for, and I think they ended up getting about three months jail sentence. Which his Honolulu jail was quite interesting. They had so much support 
in, in that area. So many people would come and check on them and help them out that they would be, they are able to feed fresh fruit to the whole jail. Everybody, every, all the prisoners in the jail. <laughs> that was kind of interesting. So that's kind of how it, it ended for the original crew there is that they eventually sold the boat there in Hawaii. It got picked up by other owners and actually did sail around the world. Ended up back in Humboldt Bay. But another interesting thing in 1958 was, uh, and this is well recounted in this uh, video called Make, what's it called? The uh, Making Waves, The Return of the Gold Rule. I think I shared it with you as a Vimeo video or whatever. But they refer to the mm-hmm. Phoenix of Hiroshima, which yeah. was another sailboat that had showed up just before they were going to sail out the second time, I think. And so they talked, the, 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 the crew of the Phoenix of Hiroshima, the captain of that boat was, was another guy that had been studying for years. He had been studying the results or the, Hiroshima explosions. He had been in Japan studying that for its radiation effects and whatnot. So he he was quite anti-nuclear weapons, that guy, and he kind of hooked up with him and they kind of passed the baton to him and he actually sailed his boat back to the Marshall Islands to try and disrupt the disrupt that testing that was going on but the upshot of all that protest was a lot of people say that had a lot to do with the 1963 nuclear test ban treaty that was passed under the Kennedy administration to stop above ground nuclear testing and so from then on I guess they did it mostly underground in Nevada and whatnot but uh so then, like I say, the boat ended up in Humboldt Bay and end, ended up in the ownership of Dr. Feelgood. That, that's, that's the story I tell because it, it sounds kind of hard to believe that that famous doctor ended up with the boat, but that's the case. And so it kind of ended up derelict and, and not taken care of in Humboldt Bay and it had been found half sunk, kind of broken up there in the bay, and then they they drug it out to this Zerling Zerling Marina, Zerling and Zerling, I think it's called Two Brothers. So I got to meet this this guy Zerling this past January when I went down there to re, to join the crew myself. So this this would be for my fourth effort as crew there on the Golden Rule. So, well, I, I I think I already mentioned the rebuild part. That was from 2010 to 2015 is when the Veterans for Peace they designated the special project, the Golden Rule project, and they rebuilt the the little wooden boat there in in Zerling's marina. He was very he has been very nice and great, great supporter of the Golden Rule to let 
let us rebuild the boat there at minimal cost and uh, given us a lot of access to tools and equipment and whatnot. So we're we're much in debt to Zerling Marina, although he'd probably tell you that he's not a big fan of Veterans for Peace, but I just kind of ignore that part. <laughs> anyway, so that was uh, 2015. It's relaunched, and like I said, it 2016, it went down to San Diego for the first time. So this, in uh, 20, now just this past year, 2021, it finally came home from Hawaii. So it had been in Hawaii from like 2018 till 2020, 2021, sailing in Hawaii for a couple of years. And mostly it had just stayed there because it had been stuck there by the virus situation right when all the countries shut down they didn't want didn't want to allow ships to be moving around recreationally i guess but um so they finally brought it back in june of 2021 to california from hawaii now was quite the uh trip took four weeks to get that boat back and mostly a lot of motoring, as I think the wind died out on them a lot. Plus, whatever the case, the boat doesn't sail that well. It doesn't motor that fast either. It goes about five miles per hour at a good cruising speed. So, coming out, coming to San Francisco, they were about four days out, and they had a fuel, water in the fuel problems. So, the engine stopped working so as you can imagine that was a hit nightmare four days out and the coast guard knew of them and the situation but they couldn't provide assistance for whatever reason and then they i can't remember how but they finally got within day or two of the of the san francisco bay and they finally got somebody to come and help tow them in so then this, the uh, situation with the fuel tank got fixed up. I guess there was some algae growing in there, just some some condensation buildup, and some water had gotten in there. So now we, they got extra fuel filters and extra ability to try and keep that out. But as I'll tell you, we still have that problem because on this trip that I took with them in January which we actually didn't get going until late January, but I, we had hoped to get going in time to sail down to San Diego by the end of January, which was going to be the commemoration of the, of the, what was it, the first or second year now that the United Nations has passed a UN um, nuclear weapons ban, basically. They, most, most countries in the world have signed it, of course, the uh, nuclear, the ones that have the nuclear weapons, they have not signed it. So we were sailing down to try and get to that commemoration with the Veterans for Peace group down in San Diego. But with the weather windows and with uh, some people less excited about the boat leaving Humboldt Bay than others, we finally got going about two weeks late and took us Two two days and two nights, one of the longest passages was from 
Humboldt Bay to San San Francisco Bay. But it was a overall just a really nice passage. The waves never got to be more than about four foot seas and the wind didn't didn't really pick up much more than fifteen miles per hour, so it was nice and calm and visibility good. So we we just had a nice time, mostly motoring, but we did put up the the jib sail. Big, we have a big front front sail called the jib, a big head sail that we used, and it kind of when there's enough wind, it helps a little bit, and it kind of stabilizes as we're motoring south there. So let's see, want me to continue with our recent adventures there? Uh, yeah, please. Yeah, just uh, now we had two captains on this on this uh, recent trip here in, in January February of, of 2022. We had Steve Buck, who's a captain, certified captain, and had captained the Golden Rule in the past. And then we had a, a new captain from Tech from uh, New York, actually from Buff- Buffalo, New York area. He came over to just to go to Captain Golden Rule. So we had plenty of uh, good leadership there. And I was just trying to be the support guide, work into maybe being first mate type position. So from uh, stayed in San Francisco there for about two days because fog rolled in the day we were going to leave and we were going to leave in the afternoon. Then it got so foggy that we couldn't see the Golden Gate and we're just like, yeah, Maybe we'll just turn around and stay here another day. As you can imagine, it was not hard to uh, convince us of that idea. San Francisco was pretty nice, and we stayed at the Fisherman's Wharf area. We, one of our friends has a had a dock there at the Fisherman's Pier 54 area. So he let us stay at, in his spot. So we were just right down there in downtown San Francisco, walking around, joined San Francisco there for another day. I even got to find a pickup game of basketball to play in up on uh, this hilltop park, not too far from the Coit, the Coit Tower. If, you're, if people are familiar with San Francisco, they probably know where that is. So lots of good times there in San Francisco. And then the next day when we got going, it was still a little foggy, but we could see the bridge and we could hear the foghorn. And we just, once we got out a mile outside of, into the sea, sea lanes and out into the ocean, the, the fog cleared up and it got real nice. So then was another day and night to get to uh, Santa Cruz. So we went into Monterey Bay and, boy, to, I want to describe what it's like to sail into Monterey Bay because when you look at it on the map, you can see that it's a huge bay. But when you're coming at it from the ocean, you're like, when do we get into the bay? <laughs> you know, it's, it's just so you could tell that we were in the bay when the seas really calmed down to just, just a foot or so of swell. And you're like, oh, we definitely must be in the bay now. It's... <laughs> feels much calmer but it's interesting 
how Monterey Bay is is not like most bays where they have a small opening. It's just a massive, massive bay that opens to the ocean. But anyway, we sailed in there to Santa Cruz and stayed in Santa Cruz for about a day and a half. And Santa Cruz was was one of the stops that I wanted to make because I had I had over the years I had. Uh, come to understand the Romero Institute and, and the the founding person on that is Danny Sheehan, who's a kind of a civil rights lawyer who who's forty or fifty years is in many of the important cases that that uh, have happened in this country to try and expose some of the like he, he protected the New York Times and the Pentagon Papers case. He was kind of instrumental in keeping them out of trouble there. And peripherally to help Daniel Ellsberg to to make his case. They, they had some contact, but they, they weren't. He wasn't like Daniel Ellsberg's lawyer, but he he knew him and he he knew of this case and all that stuff. He's, but not, then, he's not related to Neil Sheehan, is he? We get asked often what people can do to help support the podcast. One very powerful way is to help us grow and reach more people is to leave us a review. You can do that on iTunes, which is the best place to leave a review. iTunes does reach the most people these days. The next best place is Facebook. Go to our Fortress on a Hill Facebook page and look for the reviews tab. And finally, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping us for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 or more a month will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Fahim Shirazi, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Caron, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds. Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Korgoth, Rick Coffee, and the Status Quo Podcast. You are all the engine that helps us power the podcast. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt for some great Fortress merch. There's t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. And now let's get back to the podcast. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but so Danny is a Harvard trained lawyer that had his first work was with uh, Wall Street, big Wall Street firm, but he quickly realized that he wanted to focus on civil rights law. And so he, well, let's see, he eventually started his own group with uh, associated with the Catholic Church, the Jesuit, Jesuit factor faction, 
of that church, and they they formed a group called the Christic Institute. And with that group, he was able to defend big civil civil rights cases, like there was some mayor that was murdered down in the south, and so some of these racial incidents he got involved in. He also got involved in the Karen Silkwood case. This was uh, the the major case that probably helped to prevent this country from having even many more nuclear power plants than what we have now. I think we have something like a hundred some that we, if they would have, if it wasn't for people exposing the craziness that was happening in the nuclear industry at the time, through the Karen Silkwood murder case, then they probably would have gotten more nuclear power plants constructed and put in place. So he got involved in investigating the whole Karen Silkwood murder and broke that open. And it actually became one of the biggest, or it was the biggest uh, payout or verdict against a corporation at the time. But it's, it had been knocked down to finally when it got 10 million was the last number, but it had been hundreds of millions. These things get arbitrated or whatever the word is. So he was involved in that case. He was involved in the Iran-Contra investigation. It wasn't for the things that Danny Sheehan and his group uncovered related to those crimes that were happening with the Contras, sending weapons to the Contras and bringing drugs back from Latin America with the same planes. All that stuff is what Danny Sheehan helped to uncover. Almost blew it open, but the Democrats and various various powerful people made sure and stopped the total uncovering of what was going on there. Eventually, they the powers to be or the you know I would say the military industrial complex I guess they figured out how to shut down the Christic Institute and they, there was a case where the uh, they had gone to a three judge appeals court panel down in Florida for the case of um, I think it had to do with some nuns that had reported murders in Latin America and then looking into it they found all these connections to con- Iran Contra drugs for guns deal so this case had come to a three judge appeals court panel in Florida mysteriously one of the judges died and then got replaced by a judge that so they voted two two to one to against Danny in that case and and not only did he lose but they decided to charge all the lawyers fees to the Christic Institute so basically they took all the money that they had so after that Danny Sheehan moved over to the west coast and that's when he started the uh, it's called the Romero Institute and that's up on a hill not too far from University of Santa Cruz there it's near the Holy Cross Church. So I was aware of the Romero Institute, and I had 
been in a little bit of contact with him, sent him sent some letters, donations, and tried to call the Roman Institute to see if I could visit with him when we were there, but I wasn't sure when we were going to be there and didn't have any kind of solid plan. But I walked up to where his offices were from the marina, and I found his offices and stuff, but I wasn't able to actually get in there with COVID and everything. They, they didn't want just people wandering in, so I wasn't actually able to meet Danny, but I met with one of these other younger teachers who said that he had talked with Danny, and so I felt like I made a little bit of a connection there, and that was that was good. But that was Santa Cruz, just walking around there for all of a day, and, and it's a pretty special spot. So then we got back going down to next stop was uh, what's that? Central California coastal town, The Rock, Morro Bay. Got to Morro Bay. Now, it was another day sail, I guess. We sailed all night, and then it was kind of nice how we ended up at 8 in the morning, 9 in the morning. We showed up at Morro Bay, and it was just very nice community, kind of a small tourist area, but they, the harbor master was so, so nice to just put us right, right up there on the dock. And so we were there for a couple days. Then we went down to Oceanside, or actually we went, we went to, uh, Oxnard first and we, we had, we had a kind of a mechanical issue and we thought we had a problem with the alternator. So we went into Oxnard Marina, north of LA, and quickly figured out that it, we, just a misdiagnosis, we, we didn't really have a problem with the engine. That's so we had, uh, yeah, but <laughs> so he had already paid for a slip at Oxnard, so. But they were real cool. They they wouldn't let us get a refund, but that's all right. Give it to somebody else, I guess. So we continued on down to Oceanside, and all day and another night we made it to Oceanside the next morning. Oceanside, as you probably know, is where Camp Pendleton is. Is that where that is? Uh, yeah, it's down about 40 miles north of San Diego. And it has a nice marina. So we stayed there for like a good week. And we were waiting mostly for one of our captains who had to go back to the East Coast, back to New York, to visit his family. He had lost a family member to COVID. So it was just me there for about a week, five or six days, staying on the boat, in the in the marina there, walking around town, checking everything out. I somebody loaned me a bike. Somebody from the Veterans for Peace group finally got a bike to me about the second or third day. And then I didn't have to walk ten miles a day. I could actually bike around. That was cool. Then. Uh, our captain Chris got back, and and some other folks showed up on about a week later, and we sailed it to down to San Diego. 
know, partly why they wanted to wait in Oceanside was that down San Diego you can park at the guest dock near Shelf on Shelter Island and, and it's near the police dock for all sailors probably know these things in San Diego, but that was that was real nice, but it's a limited thing. You could, you're limited to 14 days, so they wanted to make sure that they had a window where they didn't didn't overstay their their allowed days and stuff. So we stayed there for about a week and a half, sailing around San Diego, and we would t- take out people that had uh, people we knew through Veterans for Peace groups or other community groups, other, uh, I think there was a big, kind of a, they, they support the homeless and they just kind of do various community work. So this group brought out some folks that we sailed around with in San Diego Bay, and then all, we would sail out into the ocean from San Diego. That was, that was kind of our route, which often took us by Navy ships and and uh, we seemed to witness the uh, dolphin training. I remember one time I saw the one of those inflatable little boats they have, you know. And they had a, a tent, and they seemed to be like make, making sure to moisturize and keep water on the. They had a dolphin underneath this tent, and pretty sure because I've seen other videos. Too, to indicate that that's what they had going on there. There was another time when we were sailing around the bay where we'd see the dolphins jumping out of the water, like being being worked with by instructors or whatnot from the Navy, I guess. That was interesting. Not exactly sure how I feel about that, but, you know, I'll reserve judgment. Maybe they're, maybe they're very careful with the dolphins and everything, but... You know, I'm sure they have important missions that they'd like to use the dolphins for. So anyway, those are some of the things that we did in San Diego. And then uh, after we were there for about a week and a half, then we sailed down to Ensenada to uh, Mexico. And part of our, our main reason for going to Mexico was to visit with a group of deported veterans. I think your I think your mic moved again, Ren. Oh, here it is. Sorry. Yeah, you've heard of the deported veterans issues there in Mexico. Oh, very much. Yeah. Yeah, there's quite a, quite a few in uh, Tijuana as well as Ensenada in that area. So we sailed with half a dozen folks from that group and some of the kind of the there was a real nice civilian guy who had been, he's kind of like their father, looks after him and checks on all these guys that aren't able to visit with their families here in the States because maybe some of them might have had misdemeanors, but sometimes it's just a lack of proper paperwork at the end of their time with the military. And for various reasons, they don't get to be citizens, so they get sent, get deported for that. So it's it's kind of a seems like an injustice for somebody who's putting their lives on the line for our country, supposedly to 
to be deported like that doesn't seem right. We tried to support them in that. We spent two or three days there in Ensenada, then we sailed back up to to San Diego. And we were only there for a day or so because we didn't have much time left. We're still, in, I guess, a certain number of days in any given 40-day period or something. So we had to get going to Oceanside. And from, from San Diego to Oceanside, that sail was, was the most interesting sail because we, we saw on the weather that it was going to be some weather picking up later that afternoon, but we thought we'd get going early enough that we could kind of avoid most of the weather. Well, what we did was we motored out like 10 miles out from San Diego, and then with the wind direction the way it was, we were able to kind of sail on a line mostly towards towards Oceanside, and we were able to sail on a pretty good heading. So I actually sailed most of that day, but then towards the, as it got dark and around 5 or 6 p.m., we were still about 10 miles away from Oceanside, and the wind really started to pick up, like 25, 30 miles an hour wind. And I remember Chris and I, we took the sails down, because it was getting harder and harder to deal with. We, we'd shorten sails and everything, but we decided to take everything down before it got even crazier. And that was a challenge, just to get the sails down. But got that done, tied everything off. And then we're just kind of making our way, motoring to Oceanside, still five or six miles out. But the waves are building to pretty good size. And given where our destination was, it was not the ideal angle to be hitting these waves at, I guess. At one point, we had a big wave just kind of, I could, I could see it from my per, peripheral view. I was sitting in the cockpit. I think all of us were sitting in the cockpit. But we're just there, and all of a sudden, this big wave just kind of rolls right into the whole cockpit area. You're like, oh, man. You know, it's like a bathtub. Everything's all full. We are kind of knocked around a little bit, but we'd been... We're down in the cockpit. We weren't sitting up on the sides or anything, so we were pretty safe position. But it was a little shocking, and it's like, well, shit, this suddenly got real. But what happened was apparently the the fuel tank vent, which are mounted there in the sides of the cockpit, they allow water to go in. So water managed to get into the tank, and... And somehow we managed to get into Oceanside, but just as we were into the marina area and figuring out where we're going to dock and stuff, the motor dies, engine dies. So fortunately it hadn't, it waited until that point because it had died, you know, just a couple miles before when we were out there negotiating the rocks of the jetties and stuff. That would have been real bad. And maybe we would have had to throw down an anchor and try to somehow avoid getting smashed on the rocks. But anyway, we were fortunate to get into the marina and we, so basically we just floated into a dock and kind of hit it at a real low speed and we're like, oh shit. We're just feeling lucky, you know, to get in. 
So that was the most excitement that we had on the trip was to, to sail from San Diego to Oceanside. But uh, yeah, that's that's the most most recent trip for me with the Golden Rule. Then after we drained, Chris and I, who knows his diesel mechanic stuff, and now I know it a little better too. We had to drain the freaking whole fuel tank of all the diesel, and, and then get new diesel. Make sure make sure the tank was clear. No water was in the tank. Get new diesel. Get all the fuel filters cleared out of water and all that stuff before we could get it going again. But we did get it going, so then we sailed up to Morro Bay again. Another day and a night, I guess, to get to Morro Bay. To spend a day there. And that, that at that point, I had to get going back here to Oregon to con- continue with my job that I agreed to do, so my boss was already very generous to let me stay out another couple weeks until the beginning of March. So then I, I went home, but they continued, the boat continued from Morro Bay to San Francisco. And now currently the boat is in Richmond area. It's parked at the Richmond Marina, I guess, in San Francisco Bay. So, yeah, their plan now is to get the boat on a truck and carefully haul it over to Minneapolis, Minnesota. But it's going to be tricky because the boat is a wooden boat, so we have to be careful to keep seawater in the bilges, quite, you know, quite a bit of seawater, keep the wood wet as it dries out and going over some of those roads and rough, if it's not padded properly or hung in a slung properly, then it might crack. So that's a concern that people are having, but they're trying to coordinate with a uh, proper boat hauler to uh, haul it over there that way. But they're going to have to stop occasionally to make sure that the outside is staying wet and that the inside has the proper amount of salt water and stuff in it to protect the wooden hull. So that should be interesting. Hopefully that'll all work out. I wonder how much the they have to pay the carrier to move the ship. Oh yeah, I'm sure it's not going to be cheap because it's a special. Our sail rig is such that it's difficult. We have two masts to take down. It's going to be extra expense there, and then to put them back up when we get to. Uh, I think they're going to put them back up. Maybe they won't. I'm not sure what they're going to do. When we get to the Mississippi River in Minneapolis, they want to do that in September. I haven't, haven't heard, haven't really talked to the director and the details on that. Are you going to participate in some of that? Yeah, I think I want to try and get involved Maybe when it's down around Florida. Sounds like I might be taking a trip down to Florida anyway about that time. So I think I might coordinate with my trip to Florida to when I can join up with the Golden Rule when it's in the vicinity. Sail on the sand for a few weeks or something. Sounds great. 
Yeah, there's a that video I shared, and I I shared it to my Twitter page if anybody's interested. It's called the uh, Rebirth of the Golden Rule: Making Waves. I believe. I'll make sure we include a link in the show notes. Yeah, and you can include a link to my Twitter page if anybody's interested in finding it through there. Sure. But, um, yeah, I've just been trying to pay attention to various anti-war folks that I follow on Twitter and, and in real life. See, see who's doing what lately. I've been following Matt Ho, of course. He's pretty exciting. I know you've had him on the podcast at least once, talking about his Senate candidacy there in Virginia or in North Carolina. And uh, let's see. I always try and see what Danny's talking about lately. Danny Jerson. How, how's he doing? Oh, he's doing all right. He's been really busy trying to trying to work on projects he's got going on right now. He's working on a two 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 different books. Um, actually, there may even be a third. I can't remember at the moment. But wow. Yeah, but yeah, he's he's doing all right, but he is he is super busy. Well, he doesn't seem to be doing quite as many appearances on various shows that he used to do. No, he hasn't. He hasn't had the time time for that recently. But we're hoping that he'll, yeah. you know, some sometime soon he'll be able to get a little more space in his schedule and be able to do stuff like that. Yeah, I thought he really had a lot of outreach going there because some of those podcasts that he'd been on have, have pretty big audiences and it was good to see like uh, Jesse Ventura, he was on his show. And mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, there was a, a few different shows on, on RT that he was able, he had, had been on. There was the, uh, course they're all closed down now unfortunately but uh watching the hawks was another show that he he had got to be on that was on rt uh, along with um oh and of course he was on 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 contact with chris edges um i think that was actually that actually happened a couple times um so but yeah no he uh um it's it's hoping that he'll be able to get started with that stuff, some of that stuff again real soon. So. Yeah, and I've been encouraged to see some of the, you know, some of the high level folks that, when they were in the military, were were fairly high ranking people that had some decision making and some responsibility, whereas I was just a senior airman, so I never felt like I had a a whole lot of responsibility. I felt like I was trained to to try and get in there and take care of people or rescue people or put fires out, that that kind of stuff. But I didn't have to take a position as far as, you know, whatever they're doing. But over the years, I've tried to educate myself. And so I really appreciate, you know, the people like Andrew Basevich, who I know is big leader in the Veterans for Peace group, and and recently this Colonel McGregor. Have you heard of his uh, mm-hmm. stuff? 
Yeah, Douglas Douglas McGregor is is great. Yeah, he's 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 got such a wealth of knowledge and experience. It's it's incredible. Yeah, he seems to be one of the few people of that rank who's willing to just flat out say it like it is. We're you know we're the we need to change. We need to negotiate. We need to do something different than just send more weapons to Ukraine and use them as a proxy war against Russia. This is terribly dangerous situation and I try and I, I often argue with some of my liberal friends with my wife and stuff because I, I don't know it just seems like most people don't don't really see the picture that I feel like I see I don't, I don't know how you how you describe it but you know what I mean yeah um it's hard it's it's hard to impart that on people um you know that being being in the military and being better a veteran is already such a compartmentalized experience um you know that the you know a lot of times you you only learn about the jobs that you're specifically exposed to so when questions come up later about other places you know non-infantry people asking about infantry missions um you know, they're, they're, people can have somewhat of a steep learning curve. Not that it's super complicated to be an infantryman or whatever position, but it it it, it creates doubt. You know, it, it seeds in doubt for people in terms of, of their experiences. Um. So, but but I think people should. I think people should should make a much greater effort to understand the role that they had even if it was, you know, even if it was in peacetime, even if it was an office job, you know, everybody still has their little, their little bits of experience that add into more stuff. Um, but the, the greatest thing, the great, you know, is, is that there's just this culture of silence, you know, that it's, uh, it, it, people don't, don't get out. And, and, you know, if they do have veteran friends, they're probably the people they see with every day, maybe at a job or somebody that they serve, they spent time with in the service. Um, but it, it, it really, it takes that person to take that time and, and decide that it's worthy uh, to ask questions and to ask hard questions of, of themselves. Um, and we're, you know, we're, America's is, uh, very openly anti-intellectual in a lot of ways, you know, that the, the pursuit of knowledge, even for just its own pursuit, you know, might, minus any other personal or social reasons why we choose to study certain things. Um, and that, you know, it, it needs to be, it needs, <laughs> it needs to be okay to learn things. And especially among, among men, you know, that the, the, the military is certainly a male dominated culture and, um, and you'll see, you know, that the, you know, the, the rougher guys make fun of the guys that, that decide to get out there and try to do something different with their lives, decide to, to not get out and be a cop or not get out and, you know, and do some of those jobs that lots of, lots of veterans fall into. And I'm not trying to badmouth cops. I don't think all cops are bad. I don't think all veteran cops are bad, but, um, but it's just such a, it's such an assembly line of that, of that movement. And, People really need to be willing to to take that step outside their comfort zone and and ask those hard questions, and especially in terms of of kids, that you know, war war and military service more in general, 
is powered by youth. It is powered by, you know, the, the teenagers and 20-year-olds of America. And are we willing to subject them to the harshness that the military comes with? But But then again, people have to be honest with themselves about the harshness of the military in general. If they're not willing to say that, you know, that there are still lots of male veterans that don't understand what happens to women in the service, you know, that, that they, they just don't. It, 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 and it's probably because they never really had any experience with it, more so than a deliberate choice on their part to be ignorant about it. It's just that they, they just, it just didn't come across their path. Um, you know, I was an MP, so I served with women my full six years, but like somebody like Danny, Danny was in cavalry and women did not, you know, other than maybe the occasional admin type thing, they, they just weren't, weren't an aspect of his, his service overall. So, you know, it's, it's just from a, from a lack of familiarity. Um, and also that, you know, we build, we build relationships. You know, I, I still have Facebook friends that I served with, um, you know, people care very much about their comrades, male or female. Um, but people people have to know before they can try to do something about it. Yeah, I remember a situation in the dorm in Sicily, and I was I was uh, I was just nineteen, I guess, and I I remember, of course, there was lots of drinking involved, and then there was just one or two ladies that were around, anyways. So. I always knew that even if I was attracted to them, there wasn't much chance of of me catching their attention or any whatever. So, but I remember hearing some rumor about that that some girl was getting abused, and I was like, "Oh, I just gotta leave, you guys. You guys all just need to go to bed. This is, you know, that that's unacceptable." But that's the kind of thing that happens often, often enough. Yeah. Domestic violence has a really high prevalence uh, among the military and among veterans in general, too. Um, so, but yeah, it, it, it's exactly that kind of experience that, that would, would serve to open people's eyes a little bit more. Um but but also is there, there's the there's the aspect that the military itself generally only reforms because they think that they're going to um, it's going to make them more competent in battle later on. Those are generally the only things that they say that they want want changed, other than uh, you know a major political movement outside of it. Um, like some of the, the military sexual assault reforms that have happened in the last few years. Not that there are enough, but they are. there certainly are leaders who see these problems and are attempting to make strides, however big or small they, they happen to be. Yeah. Well, and I, I was impressed to see leadership from quite a few women in the Veterans for Peace group, mm -hmm. have like Brittany DeBarros, I believe, and... Mm -hmm. Yet Adrian, awesome. this this lady Adrian Kanea is, uh, I believe she's the president right now, and so we we see some leadership in the Veterans for Peace group, which is is always good. I I know I got to meet uh, Ann Wright when I was at Standing Rock in 2017, I guess it was, 
that was a highlight for me just because I had paid attention to her writings and stuff over the years and her speaking. And so she's impressive and one of the few people of, of that rank, too. She was, I think she was the first, or she was the, one of the diplomats that, that opened the embassy in Afghanistan. Hmm. And then she, she, uh, ended her career there in protest to what she saw happening. But yeah, I just have so much respect for those people like her and, you know, people today like Scott Ritter is trying, con- continuing to try and get the message out that you know, Russia may not be the only one causing problems in the area. You know, the whole backstory of this invasion of Ukraine, we seem to be just trained to believe that Russia's just a bully and they're doing this because they want to take over more territory or something. But then they don't hear about the stories of thousands of people suffering from basically civil war and these kind of neo-Nazi fascist nationalist type groups that were were fighting with the Russian supported groups there in the Donbass and all, all those details just they just get skipped over to what we have now, I guess. Yeah, the small, the smaller they can make the the story, and the least amount of uh, uh, diversions from their their main points of propaganda, the easier it is to to keep convincing people. You know, yeah. we've we've had a you know a long, long history in the U.S. of of hating Russians of. Um, associate uh hating communists but and of course always associating all russians with communism whether they actually believe it or not or what the numbers from the country actually say but what you know whatever nastiness that people can can come up with yeah and it makes it that much easier for people to just accept it it's like okay russia's doing bad things we're gonna bomb them kill them case close you know for them it, it's literally that that short of a of a segue that they, they deal with in terms of understanding it. Um, let alone actually trying to take time to look at the situation, you know, to listen to some people like Ann or like Scott Ritter or, um, uh, I'm blanking on who else has been talking a lot about that's, uh, Douglas McGregor. Yeah. And talk, talking a lot about, about what's happening and how it, how, it it diverges and how it uh yeah they 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 count on our apathy they count on our ignorance well it doesn't seem controversial to me but i think there's still most people in this country would be would be disbelieving to to be told what happened in syria was uh many cases like like the uh chemical weapons that were supposedly purported by the uh, Syrian forces to they they mm-hmm. dumped chemical weapons on their own people and but that turns out to have been conducted by 
you know, white helmets and, and done by, done in a way that the chemical weapons group in, out of, under the United Nations had to do, had to, their first report, they had to withdraw it and then put in a whole nother report because their first report had been debunked, I guess. So I, I think it's scary, but I think that the, anything that they say, like these massacres that they claimed have happened in Buka and mm-hmm. whatever, they, before the evidence is even in, they've already convicted the Russian forces of done, doing this, but it sounds, according to Scott Ritter and various reliable people, that, that, uh, Russia's been trying to be quite careful with their, how they, civilian people get caught up in, in the war. Whereas the Ukraine, sometimes they've been just slaughtering people that they think are cooperating with Russia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just an ugly situation, but somehow, media over here can clean it up for us and present it to us in a way that makes us outraged by Russia. That's it. That's it. That's all you need to worry about. <laughs> Throw another $40 billion. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. Uh, I don't know what I could say on that that somebody like Scott Ritter hasn't already said, so that's what I would say is try and educate ourselves beyond CNN and whatever... Uh, the morning Sunday shows are trying to push off. Well, I think uh, I think that's a good place for you and I to uh, wrap it up for today. Okay. Um, thank you, uh, thank you so much for coming to chat with me about the Golden Rule and about your your time in the military. And I uh, I hope that this episode will let people know a little bit more about that the whole mission of it and, and, um, and maybe to keep an eye out for it because it, it may end up being in their neck of the woods sometime, uh, sometime soon. Yeah, that's right. The great circle tour go, the, from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, go down the Mississippi river to the Gulf of uh, Mexico and then sail over to Florida. And then, and then I guess there, I think I mentioned that we were going to, they're planning on just going from, Key West or one of those Florida areas over to Cuba for a week or so and then come back to Florida and continue on up the Atlantic seaboard and then get, I believe, into the Hudson's River or the St. Lawrence River, one of them, to sail, complete this great circle tour that way. So, yeah. And I wanted to mention just as a Air Force veteran, I want to mention another Air Force veteran who's suffering right now. Um, the guy who released the evidence of drone, what, what, the drones were not as, uh, precise as we like to think, and that 90% of the casualties from the drones are civilians. That was Daniel Hale. Daniel Hale's in jail right now. And people should give a thought to him. And of course, Julian Assange is ongoing his suffering for trying to reveal crimes of this country. Just 
leadership or whatever. So that those things should be said, but I appreciate your show and thanks. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed our discussion today, and uh, maybe we can. Uh, there, uh, we'll have another one sometime in the future that you can come back and join us, chat about something, uh, something else. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, St. Louis, I guess, is the headquarters there of the Veterans for Peace, so I'm sure we'll have a big get together there when the boat gets there. Look forward to that. Maybe. Danny's not too far from there. Maybe he'll even show up or something. <laughs> uh, you, you never know. You never he's, you never know with Danny. So. Yeah. He's in Kansas, I, I understand. Yeah. All right, Rip. Well, I, uh, We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill. And also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. You Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be